From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the Saddle. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word. Describe it. From the Saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt and this is From the Saddle. If history were taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. The Dawson River water runs deep in his blood and the dust of the district, I have no doubt, is in his veins. Stuart Anderson was once the warm voice over every PA system in the Theodore community and has helped shape the young minds in so many ways. From a pony club instructor to a rural fire warden, Stuart has an incredible story to share. Much like Stuart's smirk, our conversation is warm, full of history and pride. From the saddle. Stuart Anderson, thank you so much for coming in and joining us today to, I guess, share your story and your journey over the years. How old are you right now, Stuart? Oh, I'm 88 and a half. Wealth of knowledge, I'm sure. A lot of, I had a lot of experience and a lot of... <laughs> yeah. So, Stuart, let's start at the start, like we always say. Where were you born? You know, paint us a picture of, of the early days for you. Well, I was born in Wowen. And I'm, I'm pretty sure the reason I was born there was mum had a sister living down towards there. And uh, that was uh, then at that stage, there used to be a doctor come out from Mount Morgan. What then they called that a house hospital at Wow, and the house is still there. And uh, that's where I was born. And, and then when we came home, uh, dad picked us up in the car and they brought us home, and the river was in flood. Mm. We in September, which was only happened once or twice ever since. Wow. And uh, that's uh, where we started. And then we went to Burnside because in those days, mum and dad lived at Burnside and they owned Woodley, although they owned Woodley. It was like a lot of the country, it was nearly all scrub country and they wouldn't run that many cattle. So they worked, their dad worked at Burnside there and the war years were on and they used to go up to Glenbar and help to muster at Glenbar there too. So, Stuart, how many siblings were oh, there at this point? The, at this point, there was uh, four, four of us, and Owen was born in about uh, 1943, I think it was, okay. 42, and we were, and I was born in 36, and then uh, Mel was born in uh, 33, and Mel was born in 35, and that, uh, that was all, that was the family, that's where we sort of grew up together, and then Owen came later. And, uh, yeah, we we had uh, a good time there at Burnside. We learned to ride horses and Dad used to break in a lot of horses in those days for Grandfather Becker. He had their own stallion there, Starloo, and uh, he used to break in a lot of horses and we used to get our horses and ride around and sometimes I can remember going under the bushes <laughs> in Old Lady and she pulled me off. <laughs> and, uh, that happened. Those things happened to quite a few of us when we were young. <laughs> But uh, no, and we used to go mustering with them whenever we could and turning out and that, and we were at a young age when we started riding and mustering, going out with them all the time, you know. So, Stuart, you're in Anderson and you just spoke about Grandfather Becker. Where does the Becker fit into your family puzzle? Uh, Mum was, my mother was a Becker. She was an Atkins, actually, uh, Granny Atkins, uh, Nelly. My grandfather was a Nelly Atkins from Coorida. Okay. And uh, that's, uh, and then... Nellie married uh, Sam Becker, 
And Sam's father couldn't, grandfather's father couldn't speak English. You know, he came out oh. from Germany and he used to make those uh, riding boots, those, those leather riding boots that he used to make. Yeah, right. And that's how he started and off in Trim. He got fined for having his pigs running <laughs> loose in Trim at one stage, but anyway, <laughs> that, that would, <laughs> wouldn't have been fun common in Trim in those days. Oh, wow. As a, yeah, no, it was... Uh, that's where we come, how the bankers come into it. Okay. So Theodore has always been home by the sounds Theodore of it? Theodore has always been home, yep. So where was school? Did you do well, school? We did correspondence school. We used to have governesses and uh, one of the governors was Nell Frost who married Jetty Becker, mum's brother, and uh, then uh, the, she lived till 90 hot. <laughs> So, yeah, that's in the, when Owen was, mum was away, when Owen was born, Auntie Nell took uh, Malcolm and I, we were the only, with the other, Neil and Fred were going to high school in Theodore, and uh, she took us down to Passchendaele, and that's where we did about 18 months schooling down there. But uh, we did, I did only one year, I, 1944, I went to school in Theodore, and the rest was all correspondence. 1944, what was school like back then in Theodore? It, it was uh, there was three three teachers, and uh, it was quite good. The class I was in had about twenty six. Skeeter Morris was in the same class. Okay. And uh, you know it it was good. I enjoyed that twelve months. But then when we went back to correspondence school, the brother taught me for a while, and then Mum taught me. And you know I suppose I wasn't a very good student really. <laughs> <laughs> and I we used to just look out of waiting for the cattle to come into the yard at Burnside there, you know, and, and we used to go over and help them with the, dipping the cattle and that afternoon when we finished school. And So it was it was a, an interesting time. We uh, had a lot of bone cattle and naturally we were interested in cattle and we had our bone, only bone cattle. We used to see a beast dead somewhere and we'd get certain bones for certain things for, of the cattle and uh, that's how we... Occupied a lot of our time when we weren't playing tennis in later in years. So, what do you mean, Stuart? Like, what? Tell me more about that. About the bone cattle. Yeah, yeah. We we used to bake pens and that for them. And uh, I think uh, your father-in-law, Gunny Hewitt, would be pretty well tied up in that game too. Right. But uh, we used to do that, and we'd have heifers, and which was one part of the hoof, and the cows with a bigger part of the hoof, and steers with the Right, it came out of the hoof and that. So when we were mustering, we used to look. If we saw a dead cow, we'd go back, <laughs> dead beast, we'd go back and get all the bone cattle we could out of them. We had a hundred of them. Right. So did you finish school? Like you said, you didn't really enjoy school, so no, I'm guessing. I finished school in grade six, which is not very high. But uh, I, it was during the 46 drought and I spent most of my time cutting, dropping Kojong trees and that with my grandfather. So we decided then it wasn't worth going on. So then we just had to get into hard work then. 1946 drought, tell me about that. That was a very bad drought. You know, a lot of the Briglow suckers died and that in 46. And the rivers, we didn't have polythene pipe or pumps or anything then to pump water out of the rivers. And we used to have to ride the rivers every, every few days to case there were cattle bogged in it mm. and then we'd try and swim them across to a sandy place somewhere to get them so they could walk out and some wouldn't walk out. We had to shoot some. Mm. But uh, it was a bad year, yeah, very, very bad. Nearly as bad as 69. That, you know, that 
I reckon they'd both been pretty near the same situation. So back in 1946, how did you manage the situation back then? Uh, well, we, we, we mainly tried to feed the cattle as much as we could. Dad used to cut a lot of bottle tree for his cattle and uh, they used to eat the inside the bottle tree. Oh. And he kept them alive and then he lost 15 and then he got a bit of rain and they came down onto the green pick and they just died. He lost about 15 then, but then he got them back onto the bottle tree again the next time when it rained, it rained properly and uh, he didn't, you know, the cattle survived. So they died from eating the green pick. It was yeah, the green pick. Where they weren't getting enough of it. No, they were weak, probably weaker than they look, would look being on the bottle tree. But uh, that saved them. And uh, then they, as soon as he fell the bottle tree, they used to eat the leaf first, and then go into the bottle tree. So, Stuart, fifteen cattle lost in that nineteen forty six drought. How, like, what sort of percentage was oh, that? Oh, that was a that was quite a. Big percentage that knocked them about a fair bit, yeah. Because cattle weren't worth a lot in those days, and uh, you know it it, uh, it 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 affected them quite a bit. Yes. So, what was the breaking point? At can you remember how long this went on for? Oh, that it broke in about November. In November it broke. We just moved to Woodley, and big storm came, and the dad had new blinds put up, and never had the wires down for them. We were holding them, and the lightning, and we could feel it kick through our shoulders. You know, it was close, but we weren't going to leave the let oh, the blinds that, go. You know, because yeah. they didn't have they had dad, dad and mum battled hard mm. for money, and then Mel was coming along, and another boys went to boarding school by him mm-hmm. for that reason. You know, no, no, it's just. A very, very interesting time. <laughs> yeah, you would have learned a lot in that drought. Well, we did learn a lot, yes, yes, learned a lot. And, uh, yeah, you know, we, we learned that one thing, you don't leave the wieners on the cows, it was too dry. Once yeah. it gets that the situation, you take them off, it's cheaper to feed a wiener than what it is to feed a cow, you know. Yeah. So uh, that's, uh, yeah, we, we learned a lot. So no, you know, no polypipe back then. No polypipe, no no pumps. No pumps, nothing. So how did you manage the water situation? Just let That's why we had to ride the rivers every few days to make sure cattle weren't bogged in there. And uh, some of the, you know, the river would go down and it'd it, it, be very boggy and they'd have a big drink of water and they couldn't get out. Mm. So that that's, yeah, that, that, it was a bit of a big problem. But today, you know, with the polythene pipe, you pump them up and then they... they They'd rather drink out of that than they would out of the water river, you know. So, um, but nearly everybody's got their rivers fenced off now, and things have changed a lot. So, right now, nineteen forty-six drought has broken. You said your parents bought another place. They didn't buy another place. They moved to Woodley. That's they owned that place all the time, but they okay. lived. They worked on Burnside because it, it wasn't a living. It, well, it was a living area, but not. Not enough cleared country in it, all open country, which was what people used to go for in those days to buy open country. And so that's uh, why uh, they, they worked at Burnside for so long, yeah. So, how far f- was the nearest town? Uh, 18, K, 18 miles was in those days to Theodore. It was the closest town, 18 miles, and then Petra Ration came on and and uh, Dad used to buy shallot <laughs> and mix with the petrol to get a few more k's out of the ah, car, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, a lot of cunning things went on. Yeah, they did, didn't they? Yeah, they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the roads, what what was... Oh, the roads, they were very poor in those days, yeah, very poor. You know, we did to go to Rocky was a two-day trip and yeah. in the old Ford and, and, and yeah, it was rough. So, Stuart... 1946, 1947, around that era, the weather, can you remember it being like now in summer it's so hot and it's, it's so humid? It's so hot and humid. Oh, you know, I can remember that when it, you'd get three or four days rain in those times mm. and when we were at Burnside, Dad used to get them and they had always they had it. They had a couple of men working for them because they worked Glenbar and Burnside together, but they had plat ropes while the rain was on, well, you you don't get that. No. <laughs> These days you get a storm and that's it and it's gone, you know. It's uh, it's it did seem to be a different pattern. Why it is, whether it be timber we've pulled or not, I don't know, you know, but it's a different situation, yes. So no more school, um, drought's broken. What were, what were you doing? What was... Oh, we were ring-barking, contract ring-barking and fencing. That's what uh, the two brothers, Fred worked at, the eldest brother, he worked at Burnside when Dad moved to Wood, Mum moved to Woodley. Mm-hmm. And uh, Neil and I and uh, Mel, when he was looking for a bit of money, we'd go, well, Mel and uh, Neil and I fenced all the time and rung-barking. We always took on a job that we, the harder you work, the more money you make because we had ambition to buy a place. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know what we, what we were thinking <laughs> But anyway, that's the situation. And uh, and it was only in 1952 that we ended up buying Devil's Nest and that was there. One, an uncle helped us financially there because Neil was only 18 and 19 and I was only not quite 18. And that meant we were, as far as the banks were concerned, we were only minors in those days, Sunday at 21. And uh, we couldn't borrow any money until we turned 20, until Neil turned 21. And then we borrowed money and then started putting in dams and just forget now what year the bulldozers came into it. But uh, they came along and then the scrub country turned into valuable country then. But uh, mum and dad, they took Neil and I a lot of talk to talk them into borrow a bit of money to do some pulling when they scrubbed, when the dozers came. The first uh, push, scrub pushed on the th- in the Theodore District was on Woodley. Oh. And they, that day they just, just, just uh, drive, drive a tractor, push it all down, and then uh, you walk over it and then knock it down, and then you had to burn it and and work from there. And then the brother, he Neil, he did start off before I left school. He was working for Cyril Becker, which is who was an uncle down there at Paranui. And then uh, when uh, Smoothie went from home to Paranui, he he bought a bigger dozer and that was the first pulling ever done in the district. So how old were you by this point, do you think? Oh, about 17. I, I wouldn't mean quite 17 because I didn't have we didn't have Devil's Nest then. Mm-hmm. So I would have been about 16. So we're talking around 1950s. Yes, right, yeah. that's when we're talking about, yeah. yeah. And uh, then uh, I just saw a photo, I was looking through the photos and there's a photo of a bottle tree pulled with a rope, a cable oh. there and it stood up until we burnt the country, it just stood there. It was that straight, the tree was and it stayed there till we burnt the country. It, it had a fo- I've got a photo of Neil and an old fellow who worked for Cyril that back at that time looking at the cut, you know. Yeah. But uh, that was the start of the pulling when 
movie, a kid bought that uh, two tractors and started pulling it with just a cable and we had the job of burning and planting it and that wasn't easy because <laughs> uh, in those days no chain, no nothing, you know, and to, it, was, what, it was hard to lighten it. But no, it was all good. So Stuart, just, we'll take a step back to your contract fencing and things. What was the money like? Uh, I just forget now what we got paid, but we first, Bit we did was ring barking for Cyril Becker, and then we did the bar- did the boundary fence and that, and and it was all crowbar and shovel yeah. and bracing bit. Yeah, it was it was hard work. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, now we we um, I, I just couldn't tell you what we made, but I know it was well. We the harder you work, the more money we made, right. and that's what we're aiming at, you know, because yep. we wanted to buy land. And uh, we were fortunate that uh, Cyril let Neil run some cattle there and Yeti Becker, I used to help him muster all the time and, and he used to re- let he let me run cattle there. So we had about oh, 100 head of cattle, cows and calves when uh, we bought Devil's Nest. But it had no water there oh. <laughs> when we bought it. So what appealed to you about Devil's Nest? Well, uh, what appealed to us, uh, we were fighting a fire of, yeah, Gunny and all those were on that other side, the range, and uh, we uh, kept seeing the smoke coming up. It came up from that side to us, and uh, anyway, we, Uncle Charlie and Neil and I, we walked across there, and all it was was white ash, you know, it was green scrub, but white, white ash, and that really made us decide we'd divide, but with a few hiccups in it because... We never realised the wallabies. We planted all with, walked around, planted with rose grass and that, and there was no green panic in that in those mm. days. And uh, the wallabies sort of liked that grass. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we ran into a few hiccups until we uh, got enough done. Yeah. So you just said that there were no, there was no green panic around. What was the pasture like? It was just uh, there was just rose grass was the only pasture we ever had to around plant. this area. Yeah, around this area. But then uh, you know it, it wasn't long before the green panic and the buffalo came in. Okay. Yeah, no, that was good. How like how did they come in? In your opinion? Oh, it was just people further down south and round Trum had developed the panic and the buffalo and that, you know, mm. and that's where we bought the seed. We used to just have to buy the seed in mm-hmm. and uh, we used to get a plane to plant it and that's how we sort of got it all established. So Woodley, Burnside, Devil's Nest, you know, they're all sort of around a similar area. Similar area. There's a lot of country there. Glenmore had quite a bit and so did Charvel and Terence mm. there, Auntie Evie on Cliffdale. And that's uh, that's where how we got it going, you know. Can you remember what you paid for, like for Devil's Nest? Uh, Four thousand pounds. And how big was it? Ten thousand acres. Ten thousand two hundred fifty acres. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a lot of money. <laughs> I remember when, um, like, I've heard when Gunny Hewitt bought Charvel, it was like fifty six cents an acre. Or yeah, something yeah, that's like that. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, when you mentioned. And moral, we used to spend a lot of time with Gunny and Lloyd when we were kids. Uh, Gunny and the, not Lloyd, but Gunny and his, uh, Laurel and the kids, because uh, mum and dad used to leave us there and go up and muster Glenbar and come back and pick us up. But I can remember one day uh, we were playing in a fair bit of mud and mum and dad finished early and Hope was at home, Hope Hewitt, mm. 
on holidays, and anyway, she threw us through the bath, <laughs> put a tub up in the tank, <laughs> and we put us through the bath to get the mud off it. But anyway, it was all good fun. Yeah. yeah. So Glenbar, how how big was Glenbar? Forty three thousand acres at that stage. It was a big place. But when Grand, uh, Cyril, Uncle Charlie came back from the war, uh, Grandfather Becker uh, gave him Fairham, which is cut off at, and that took about 18 or 20,000 acres of it. Then. Okay. Mm. So how long were you on Devil's Nest before you started to develop it, I, I guess? We were, were there on and off. We did Neil and I contract mustered for a lot of the relations for a long time. We used to get you know, three pound a day then, which was good money. And uh, we did that for quite a few years before, until 1960 was really when I first, once I got married, that's when we first really settled down there. I settled down there. Yep. Yeah. 1960, so you were what, 20, 27 oh, or something? Must have been about that. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. did you meet your wife? Oh, probably, at dan- I know it was dancers and, and Doug Howard was a bit involved in that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and uh, I met her at dancers, yeah. We used to go to a lot of dances together and then tennis tournaments and, and, you know. So newly married, like family, how many kids? We and- had six kids, five still alive, and the youngest fellow got, had a horse accident in 83 and got killed. How old was he? Twelve. Yeah. So uh, that was uh, that put a bit of a knock to our to us. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but anyway, uh, there's a lot of people in the same boat, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, we we we've had um, they've had a good time. Uh, they've all worked hard at home and mm. all learned to plough and must ride horses and must and that, you know. Christine. Uh, is well, the only one really at this stage that hasn't gone on with the land. Mm-hmm. Michelle hasn't now either, but she used to. And uh, the uh, Carmel still does and Rocky there. And, yeah. And the two boys have got played. Graham's on the home place now and and uh, Brian's got a place out by uh, Thornby. Yeah. Mm. So, Stuart, raising kids on the land back then... It's very different to what it is. Now. Oh yes, it's very different than the stories I hear now. What those <laughs> kids got up to? <laughs> yeah, it, no, it's very different. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. They, yeah, they used to get on their horse and go riding and that, and they used to ride through the Malinois, apparently. But anyway, <laughs> a lot of them, a lot of them, and they used to have water in them at that stage. So the horses. You know, now we sort of look for safe kids' horses and things like that, whereas I think back then the kids were just made to ride the horses. Well, they had to ride the horses. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. They had to ride the horses. And today it's a different situation. People are paying a lot of money for horses Mm. today. But, you know, when you think about that, they used to do a lot more riding in those days than they do now. Yeah. Uh, Because of the tick situation, you know, we I can remember mustering cattle every fortnight because of ticks, you know, when they had arsenic dip. And then it wasn't until they brought these other dips in that put that it eased it up at all. So, you know, uh, the situation there is, is quite a bit different to what it used to be because they kids used to live on horses, really. Yeah, I was all involved in the pony club. Yeah. And we had six riding there at one stage, you know. So Devil's Nest, how far... Is that from Theodore? Uh, about 18 k's. Yeah. So 18 miles. 18 I mean. miles. Yeah. So you used to load the truck k's. up. 
Yep. All and the kids, all the ponies, all the gear. Yeah. And off you'd go to pony club. And Pam in- used to have all the washing <laughs> afterwards, you know. Yeah. 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 So, Stuart, at what point did you become so invested in into the community of Theodore? Probably... Probably in the early, not that long after we're married and the kids got about five or six and then got very involved in it and from there on, you know. Did they go to the Theodore School or were they? Yeah, they all went to the Theodore School. Yeah. And I think four of them were born in Theodore. The only two that weren't was Christine and Carmel. They were born in Cracker. Well, Carl was born in Rocky, but she, the doctor was crooking Cracker while he sent her through to Rocky. But uh, the others, as Christine was born in, in uh, Krakow and the other, all the others were born at the Theodore Hospital. Because Krakow used to be the go-to, didn't it? It, it used to be the go-to t- t- hospital one day, yes. Yeah. Because I think the mine was there and they had to have medical yeah. uh, there, you know. So kids are at school. Stuart, you were for a lot of years, the warm voice over the PA system on on various groups. We, you know, the show society, the camp draft, you know, local school for the sports and carnivals and um, the tennis club, the pony club. Did you love it? Yeah, I did. I I enjoyed it, yeah. Yes, I enjoyed it and I enjoyed the people I met and were involved with in it all, you know. It was very good. So what got you into it? Oh, I... I (laughs) I don't really know what got me into it. Dad was pretty involved in this, oh, not okay. in announcing or anything, but in, in all horse sports and yep. pony club, the old pony club and that, you know, he was an instructor and that. And, and I think I just sort of followed through. So apart from the announcing, what involvement did you used to have? I used to be, I was president of the Theodore Pony Club for, oh, I don't know how many years, and the Zone club, Pony Club and then also the, yeah, Tied very tied up in the tennis association and the veterans tennis. So yeah, I, I, I was probably involved in too much. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it, it, I used to work during the week, and then Sunday was the day off, and that was the day for tennis and and other things, you know. Mm. So when your kids first started, were there a lot of community groups, or did you did they just sort of you know grow over the years? They grew over the years. Yeah, there was quite a few groups around, but uh, you know they didn't have the football in those days, which made it easier to run things and uh, that. And uh, you know it, it's it's not a big town, and you've got to accept the fact that uh, you know there's other organisations starting things up that took a lot of our members away. Yeah. And it was, uh, but it was all for the good, yeah. and I think good for the town. So, Stuart, what was your involvement with the Pony Club? The Pony Club, I was an instructor and also president of the of the Theodore Pony Club for I don't know how many years. Adrian Holmes started off, kicked it off when we first started, and uh, Mary Pope was very involved in it, and Don Pope, and uh, then uh, I was his own president for quite a few years. So uh, I had quite a bit to do. We did a lot of travelling. We went to, down to Kilcoy once to a pony club event down there and Gladden and Monto and Billowilla, you know, we did all those. So we we travelled a lot of cars doing pony club events and also there was some some pretty strong. Pam was good friends with, uh, with uh, Rabina Jules and they used to, go to all the events and that too, too. So it was a two-way thing, yeah. Mm. So 
What did Pony Club look like back then? For kids to sort of learn, like now there's, you know, gear check and... Yes, it was a, we were probably a bit more flexible. Um, you know, safety's come into it a lot, but uh, it's not, hadn't changed that much. Uh, really, a lot of it, they, you know, they still do gear checks and that, and we always used to do gear checks and things, and it, it was all good, yeah. Then they, we used to do quite a bit of pony club cam drafting and that in those days, and... And I think Finley did very well in that. <laughs> Finley did. He still does, yes. Yeah, 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 no. So it's all very good. What benefits did you see your kids gain from you being a part of all these community groups? Well, I think they gained more through competition and other children than what they did with me being involved. Uh, I got, I took them, you had to take them to it, you know, but then it was up to them then to... Uh, get into their groups. They all had their age groups, and it was they improved a lot better in their riding quickly than what they would have at home. Yeah, because I'd probably a bit cautious, you know. Yeah, and uh, there they were when I wasn't around. They were going well, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's the uh, advantage of the pony club. I reckon it's a big advantage if the kids are going to follow the horses. Sure. You spoke, you know, before about you lost a child to a horse accident. Yeah. After that happened. Did you struggle with Pony Club and things like that? No, I didn't uh, really. It was uh, just one of those things that happened. You know, I think you've got to accept it and mm. that. And uh, But I, I didn't struggle with it. I suppose I was a bit more cautious and a yeah. bit more worried. But, uh, you know, it, it was just one of those things that happened and you just got to accept it. I think if, if, they've been, if they're being involved in horses... It's one of those things that can happen, you know. How have you seen, you know, the likes of the show society um, evolve and change over time? It, it, it has changed enormously. When they first started, they had uh, pig sections, sheep sections and dairy sections, you know, and over the years they've just gone out and then the cattle have come in, you know, people have gone into the cattle side of it and, the show champion cattle there years ago it used to be just the biggest bullock in this thing, you know, and now it's you know, we can even win it today, you know, wait for age and that. And uh, but it, everything is involved, and probably one of the greatest things they ever did was move the showgrounds from in the town out to where they are. And I, and I will admit, I was one that didn't think it was going to be. Good because I've done a lot of work in the other one, <laughs> and uh, but no, they they've done a good job and it's very good. I guess you know I was secretary for seven or eight years, yeah. and I've only just stepped down. The one question that we always get asked is that how important is the show to the community, and yeah. you know why should we have a show, and do we think it's changing? If we went back, say thirty years ago. Mm. A show you went to, you know, network um, to buy the tractor you were wanting yeah. to buy the vehicle, whatever it might be. Yeah. Now everything is so readily accessible mm. and available. Unfortunately, I think ag shows are now a dying thing of the past. Yes, I th- I, I hate to agree with you, mm. but I think I do agree with you there because there's, uh, you know, you take years ago the amount of people that used to go to the show was unbelievable and today, you, you know, it's just a handful of people sort of follow the show and it's a bit, it's a bit sad really, yeah. Has the camp draft always been a part of the show? 
No, not always. No, they used to have it separately, and they still have it separately, but it was never a part of the show society. You, the uh, Pony Club used to have a camp draft, and the, at one stage the Theatre Tennis Club, we used to go day, follow one another, and then there was the St Patrick's draft, and uh, I forget there was another one too. The show, wow. you know, they used to have five or six drafts through the year. Holy. Well, now it's one camp draft, you know. Yeah. And a big one. A big one. A yeah. big one. They're getting big. They are getting big. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's probably that's probably a benefit to the camp draft because their prize money's gone up and it allows them to give more prize money and there's not it's not a sport that's not not a lot of money in it. Only the top few might make a bit of money, but there's a lot ride for the fun of it, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Stuart, let's talk about the tennis club and your local involvement in that. Where did that all, where did that come of it? Because, you know, a lot of years ago, tennis was the social aspect. That's correct, yes. Yeah, well, our tennis, I can remember mum and dad playing tennis. It must have been just at the end of the war, during the war there. They used to play at uh, Blighty there, and uh, then uh, we just got involved. We used to get behind. We, we, they must have cursed us because we used to be behind the court, and the minute they were finished, Mel would be on one end and I'd be on the other end, and we'd hit to one another, you know. Yeah. And uh, that's how it all started. I've been uh, in the Theodore Tennis Club for about, member of it, for about 70 years, I suppose. Wow. Yeah, and Mel started uh, playing at Woodley down there. We used to go to do correspondence school and start early and finish early and go out in the tennis court. <laughs> and he'd clock out of me, out of me every day. <laughs> but I gave him confidence. I lacked confidence myself. <laughs> but no, it it, it, was, it was it was very rewarding. We used to go to tennis tournaments and that. And I remember I drove to Wowen there. I never even had a driver's license. I was. Oh. And I drove to one and the sole sergeant, he knew what was going on and he was running the tennis, of course. <laughs> so he was glad to have Mel there and and uh, we used to just uh, park the car and walk to the tennis courts. And But he, he uh, worked hard to get to where he got and he didn't get it easy. So for the listeners that don't know, who's Mel? Mel, Mel, my younger brother than I am, he is. Uh, he's older than Owen and younger than me. He uh, was born in 35, 5th of March 35, and uh, he uh, was the United States singles champion in 1957, I think it was. All from the tennis courts at Woodley? All from the tennis courts at Woodley and Theodore. Mm. Yeah. So it uh, all started from there, and he probably, you know, of, of all the champions that Theodore produced, he probably was one of the greatest, you yeah. know. And he played Davis Cup tennis for years. He did tell me he once how many overseas trips he's made, but it was well up in the 30s that he'd made overseas, you know. Did you teach tennis as well? No, just a bit in theatre or there, but no, not a, not a lot. No, I wasn't quite good enough to teach it, you know. But I, I used to help the juniors along a bit there, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. Sounds like you've played, you know, a, a great hand in a lot of – the generation coming up into, mm. I guess, their sporting, um, whether it be pony club, tennis, camp mm. drafting. Yeah, everything. I, it was something I, I sort of did and I enjoyed doing it and uh, I just hope they benefited a bit from, <laughs> from it, you know. But they have. Uh, but it's good to go to Theodore and then see those playing tennis like a lot of the other Anderson boys there play very well. And it all came from Mel and he taught them tennis when he was young. 
And Joe Maloney is another one. Man of many talents, our Joe. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that uh, just about covers the tennis side of it. Just, like, I wonder how many people in Theodore realise how much history, you know, it mm. stems back to your generation. Yes, uh, it would be surprising how many years, how much does the development mm. go back to that era, yes. Mm. I know, we do. I've seen a lot happen. Yeah. I hope to see a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Royal Fire Brigade. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I read earlier before that you became a part of the Royal Fire Brigade in 1952, which you were 18 years old. Yeah. In 1975, you became a fire warden. Yeah. Before we start there, tell me about the 1950 fire. It was a big fire. The 50 fire, it was all up right from the run. I think it was about eight or 10 k's we had to burn one night. And uh, that year we had fires everywhere, you know. I don't know why, mm. but uh, we'd just go from one fire to another. Mm. And this one was, uh, I went up the Glenbar side right through Glenmore. We went through Glenmore. We burnt a break one night right from Glenmore right through to the top of Devil's Nest, where we anchored it in some scrub up there. And uh, it was a big fire. Grandfather Becker, he was at the house at Glenbar and he said you could have read, read the newspaper. <gasps> he said it was that, that bright, the glow was that bright from the fire. How, so he, what's the distance there? Uh, about eight k's. Wow. Oh, it was a big fire. But she said that country hadn't been burnt for years and mm. it, it, it went. Yeah. So how were fires fought back then? Well, we, luckily yeah, some of them had dozers and we had brakes to burn off. And that's all the say, you know, we could never burn them without the dozers having a fire break. Well, you know, we're talking 1950, so dozers are only fresh on the ground now. Yeah, we're only fresh, the old bull, bulldog dozer. Yeah. <laughs> single cylinder dozer, Cyril Becker had one of them and, yeah, and Les Becker had a Fiat, a Fiat 50 CI, and that's what they pushed the brakes with, no graders or anything in those days, you know. We have a Fiat grader at home. <laughs> yeah, we call it Maid of the Greater because yeah. she's red and, yeah, yeah, she's seen better days. But anyway, she's gone strong. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, they, they, they're very valuable things. Yeah. yeah. Alan does love her. Yeah. So 1950 fire, was it true you fought it for 40 days and 40 nights? Well, that's right. In that, we, we had nights, we right, came right from Cliffdale right through there. And, uh, yeah, we had 40 days and 40 nights on fires that year. How many of you were fighting this? Oh, we were very lucky. But as we, you know, I probably fought most of the way because we were freelancing in those days. We, you know, Neil and I, and and, uh, then uh, as we got out one area, they'd look after that and we'd go further because it just kept going and going, you know. We would have had at least 15 men at one stage, mm. nothing under that, you know. That's not that many, though, for 40 days and 40 nights. Oh, like, no, that's not that many, yeah, but uh, we, you know, they used to keep breaking and having a couple of nights yeah. off and then yeah. back into it again. So communication, how was the communication at this point? Nothing. No. No, there's no communication, not two-way radios like no. they have today, you know. It, no, it was no communication. It was only that we had to base ourselves on the, there going so that we weren't too far, that far from one another, you know. 
and then if anything happened, one you'd go back and get the other if it jumped or something like that, yeah. and or a hot spot. And so, did you find that someone you know took it upon themselves to sort of be the go-to person or the commander? Yeah, of, well, I guess I guess I copped that a bit because Uncle, Uncle Charlie, <laughs> Uncle Charlie thought I was just it on the fires and that, you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, well, I guess I copped that a bit because I was fire warden and f- number one fire officer as well Yeah. when I took it on, you know, but before that I was pretty involved in it, yeah. So this in the 1950, like you were the yeah. go-to person? Yeah, yeah. You were 16 years old yeah. around then? I'd, I'd been around for years a while, old. Yeah. yeah. That's not that old. No. Like for, for the 17-year-old kid now, mm. you know, it's just, it blows my mind. But, you know, our experience we'd had at 17 was, was far more than what the chance of the yeah. young ones have today. Far Absolutely. more chance. So 40 days, 40 nights, this mammoth fire. Mm. Like every day, did you sort of right? Oh, this is the situation. Let's work on this. And yeah, that's what we used to do. And then during the lunchtime, you know, we'd have a break and burnout breaks at about five o'clock on. But during the daytime, you'd lie down and have a break. That's how we kept going. How was your mum through this? Oh, she she was cook, <laughs> one of the cooks. But they they they, we, they fed us well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know now when there's, you know, the fires are being fought and, you know, Finley comes home and says, there's a fire, it's gotten away, I've got to go. Yeah. That's as much as I know. Yeah, And he, yeah. he's out the door. Yeah. I don't know where it is, I don't know how bad it is, I don't know what the situation's like. And we listen for the talk back on the UHF yeah. and we try and pick up bits of information, oh, it's not so bad, it's all good, or, you yeah. know, crap, it's just actually gone to yeah. shit. And all I know is they, they're going to need food. Yeah. You know? So then, you know, we communicate between all of us yeah, in, in yeah. terms of the wives and that. But back then, mm. that wasn't a thing. No, that wasn't. It? So you would you would have just walked out the door and your mother would have been going, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, no, we, she had to keep pretty well. She was a very countryfied woman, mm. like, like a lot of those old women were. Yeah. And, uh, and she'd know where we were and she'd make sure we had Tucker and and that there and she could drive and she knew, yeah. So 1975, you became fire warden. Yeah. Tell us about your time in this role. Oh, well, it, it, it was a time of a lot of development, but, you know, they didn't have the restrictions on the fire warden that he's got to, that you have today. Because, uh, you know, you used to rely a lot on your neighbour to be honest. And that and that's that's how we got through it. It was I, I didn't mind it, but I, I found out in the end that it was just getting too much for me. I didn't have a computer or anything like that. I'm I'm computer illiterate. I ended up resigning from it, and then the son took it over. Graham took it over then for a few years. So back then we just spoke about how you used to fight a fire. So many of those methods are still used yeah. to this day. It hasn't really evolved other than, you know, the technology for Firecom to see where the fire is yeah, or anything that's right. like that. Do you think that the method of backburning and, you know, just burning land plays an important role in... You fight fire with, with fire. fire. Yeah. That's all you can do. Yeah. You can't let it come out onto the edges or you're gone, mm. you know. And uh, you, you've got to burn back and fight fire with fire. Yeah. 
And what about sort of maintaining your paddocks and your land to to avoid, you know, the big fires? You do that a lot, yes. You, you try and work your paddocks so that you, you know, don't have the same body of feed that you usually have. But still the biggest problem in Glenmore and those have a lot of it is further back off the waters and that, you know, where they get the body of feed. Jeff Fairhams and other places that has a lot of trouble with that, you know. And uh, I don't know how you get around it, but we have got, had a lot of good correspondence over the later years with the uh, forestry department, you know, because they've been quite good, really. Yeah, because there is quite a, a large spread of forestry that oh, backs yes. into that country, isn't there it? There is a lot, yeah. a lot of it, yeah. So that has created some big fires in there. Yeah. Stuart... You spoke before about, you know, the the body of grass being different, yeah. in, you know, in the earlier days compared to what they are now. Did that play a role in, you know, how the fires used to burn and it things did, like that? Yeah, it does play, did play quite a role in it, yes, yeah. But, they, you know, they, they seem to stock heavier today than they used to years ago and and some places stock very heavily and mm-hmm. that and make a good break. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Natural fire break. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, no, uh, it um, is a big worry to a lot of people, especially if you join a, for- a national park because they, they, although they've done a good job, they're still very volatile to fires. Mm. Yes, I, I think uh, it's, it's been a good experience and, and uh, I've enjoyed it. And, you know, everybody comes to a fire even if it's on their place. They're, Absolutely, They're yeah. not, not down the mouth about it, no. you know. It's one of those things that happen and yep. you just get into it. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So let's talk Theodore for a moment. Theodore's always been home. You are, yeah. you know, 88 and a half years of age. How's Theodore evolved over time? Well, Theodore has changed a terrible lot because, uh, you know, in 44, I go back to when I went to school in Theodore, there was a, there was nearly all tin sheds, you know, and there was a baker there and a butcher across the street where the uh, present uh, news agent is. But uh, all the other t- houses were all old houses and tin houses, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, from the 50s, late 50s on, it, they started rebuilding and building different area and that, you know, and it uh, it went from there. But uh, uh, the old days, there wasn't a real lot in Theodore, no. So what used to bring people to Theodore, like families? Was it just the farming and the agriculture? the farming and the agriculture brought us to Theodore, yes. And uh, we did, uh, the cars and the roads were no good to go, weren't good enough to go anywhere else, you know. Yeah. And during the war, the fuel ration was on and... Mm -hmm. That, you know, and uh, we just all got came to Theodore. But I, I think it, I'm, I'm a local supporter, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, it's been good to us. So who were the main families back then? The main families, they were all gone by the Andersons and the Beckers. There's still quite a few of them about here. And then uh, Hewitts, there's a lot of Hewitts and always has been. They're not driving on. So, yeah. But they're the main families that have been, and they've stayed here for so long, you know. Yeah. A lot of the others have come and gone, you know. They come here and then they retire from here, a lot of them have, and some have sold out and gone into bigger areas, you know. And they've, But they've, a lot of them have made their start in Theodore. Yeah. And, and if you think back, a lot of it was daring years ago in Theodore. 
Actually, it, well, yeah, I've it, heard we, that. It was a big, a big lot of daring, and the ag, main reason I, I think that was the Agricultural Bank always had a bit of land on the uh, on the cream check. Right. And that's why they encourage people to go into daring. Okay. Because I, you know, Dad dairied out at Burnside there for a period of time and and Ron Feltz where they are, Jeff Johnson, that they're all dairy down there that way, you know. So I, I think that's, uh, you know, why, why a lot of them went into it. But you take Give a Gun, you went in, it was first opened up Austin and all those dairied. And then they cotton came along, and they went into cotton, and they haven't looked back since. Did there used to be a slaughterhouse? Yes, along there. Yeah, it used to be a slaughterhouse up out here. I don't know about down down that way down there. But yeah. um, it used to be old swamp. Ah, <laughs> give a right. gun. Give a gun. Used to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can remember riding through there just through water. So. Businesses. What were the businesses in town? The businesses in town. Uh, we had two banks at one stage, mm-hmm. but uh, the uh, I can remember the well, we had New South Wales Bank where the post office now is, and then uh, the A the and Z Bank started up. Well, it was the Union Bank then started up down next to the uh, BP service station, and then America made it with the A and Z, uh, and then uh, they moved up into that other corner of the building where where the ANZ Bank is now. Yeah. And then uh, both banks are gone now. Yeah, they have. No yeah. banks, no more. No. Let's talk cattle market over the years. Yes. How have you seen that sort of change and adapt? Oh, it's, it's changed enormously. You know, once it used to be the biggest and fattest bullock you made the most money, mm-hmm. but that's not the situation today. It's uh, all sold on weight and teeth and and everything it, it's changed absolutely completely I think it's uh, it's been a good thing for the industry people have improved their cattle herds a lot because they've had to you know because it's all on quality today yeah not so much quantity not so much quantity and that's what it is you know and I can remember going to the cattle sales and all dollars cents ahead you know pounds ahead for start pounds and shillings and then that got to dollars and cents, and now it's cents per kg. Yeah. And uh, it, it, I think it's a good thing for the industry. What was the worst ever that you saw the market in? What was the worst time? Uh, back in 74, it, it uh, went from being good market down to crash, down to that, and the Japanese pulled out of the market, and that's what happened, and it just crashed. So what would an average beast would have sold for back then? Well, it, uh, I know one fellow knocked 42 cents a kg back for his bullocks and he sold them for 18 and after a while, you know, he just did. It was never, 18 he, cents per kilo? Per kilo, yeah. Wow. Yeah, see, you wouldn't exist on it today. No. And I remember I sold uh, heifers to a fellow and took them on adjustment there, I think about 12 pounds a head for weaner heifers, you know. Yeah. And it, it was hard, yeah. Could you even live on it back then? Well, we, the only thing that saved us and it was that we had farming as well. At that stage, we'd gone into a bit of farming yep. and had a decent sorghum crop. Yeah. And that's, and, but it didn't last for that long. It, it didn't only last a short period of time and then it started to gradually pick up, you know. Come back up. And then it, today it's the best I've ever seen it. Wow, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's, it's been, been a fluctuating market all the time, but. 
but it, the, the last, you know, few years it's been very good. So farming did, on De- Devil's Nest? Yes. And was it obviously dry land? Dry land farming, yes. Yeah. yeah, no, dry land farming. We did that because of regrowth came in the, after we pulled the suckers, pulled uh, the briglow yeah. and that, you know, the regrowth came and mm. and then uh, the blade plough came into it. That uh, did a lot lot of good. But we before the blade plough came in, we, we hit the plough and uh, I think I was about 37, 38 before we sat on a tractor and plowed <laughs> Oh, of land. so 38 before you sat on a tractor? Yeah. Open cab? Open cab, <laughs> cold as hell, <laughs> <laughs> overcoat on. Yeah, it was, it was an experience. I bet it was. But, uh, no, it, it was good and uh, I enjoyed it. Oh, you plough your ground, you plant your crop and now it comes and see it grow and then get to a certain thing and then it won't rain. <laughs> yeah, then it won't rain. Yeah, 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 but anyway, it was all good. Yeah, yeah. But it got us out of trouble. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, you know, it was always adapting, I guess, to the way even back then, not to have your eggs in one basket, that so to speak. That was right. That was what, yeah, you don't want your, all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, no, it was good. So, Stuart, tell us about the agent that you wanted to talk about. Oh, Adrian Holmes. I, I thought he did a very good job. He built his own yards out there and uh, he was one of the Holmes enterprises there that have been ah. in the district all their lives. And uh, his wife, I was only talking to the other day up at the Hack Centre, you know, and uh, Adrian uh, did a very good job. He was he had a good personality and he, he had sales out at Lonesome Creek there about every fortnight, you know. So he was the first agent in town, in theory. He was the first. He and Mari Grado. Mari Grado was, uh, his mother and father used to have the post office mm-hmm. there, and, but Mari was a very laid-back agent. He used to just... Uh, Will Fantpress used to nearly, he was a buyer for, I think it was uh, Lake Creek, and he used to nearly keep hold of Maury going there, you know, but he was a terrible good fellow, and, and uh, he and Adrian were good mates. And, uh, yeah, and, but they were the only two agents here, and then Elder started, and then uh, our states brought Adrian Holmes out, and uh, that's the uh, way they've gone. But now Elders are the only ones left in Theodore. So the, the cattle yards you're talking about, they're still on the side of the road there? They're still on the side of the road, but very dilapidated now. Yeah, they are, aren't <laughs> yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. So Stuart, we've spoken about where you've called home and, and the properties that you've been a part of in yeah. the district. How have you seen the rural development in the area over your time? It's, it's been amazing because originally they all the scrub's gone and then people have started clearing their forest country and uh, you know it, it's changed enormously the yeah you know, I can remember counting 29 trucks waiting to unload sorghum out at the wheat dump there and uh, you know now there's very little of that grown it's gone into cattle the development has been and even of late the development of forest country people have working on that and and getting developing and all that and it's the carrying capacity in that is amazing to what it used to be on the country. What's something that you have seen but you never thought you'd see in your time? Well, I, I, years ago, I didn't think I'd see see the two change of the <laughs> change of uh, two thousand. But uh, you know, it, it's it's been an enormous change. Just uh, I suppose you just look at the development of the irrigation areas, and that you know how that's all developed. I saw. 
begonia develop. And uh, now that's all out the other side of Theodore there, that's all clearing and irrigation and, and along the rivers all the way they've got their dams and they're allowed to pump out of the river while it's running. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's mind-boggling really what's happening, happened to the country. I never thought it'd ever happen, you know. You wouldn't think it would happen, but it has. Do you think it's benefited the community in the district? I I do, yes. I think it has benefited the district, yes. See, you take cotton. It's a very expensive crop to grow. Now, there's not a lot of, terrible lot of people grow it. But then, you know, you take the chemicals, the the amount of cost to grow it, all that chemical's got to come from somewhere. Mm. And there's somebody involved in in that and in carting it and all that, you know, so... Yeah, around all years, it's it's a big industry, and yeah. Yeah, and you can see those things happen, you know. Stuart, what would you say the best piece of advice that's ever been given to you is? Don't spend your money before you got it. It's one thing we've always been, you know, make sure you got it in the bank before you spend it, and that way you don't get into trouble. But, uh, you know, it, it, a lot of situations are different, though. You know, years ago, you you couldn't make money unless you spent money. And, and there wasn't a lot to may, be made to spend, you know. So uh, the banks came into it quite a bit, and they've changed completely. You'd go into your, see your bank manager and he, you know, tell him what you want to do. And if he agreed with it, you're pretty sure it was come through. But today it's all done in Melbourne. Different situation altogether. So yeah, I I I, I think the main advice is to just don't don't go ahead of yourself. Don't go too big too quick. You're a grandfather. Yeah. You now live in town in a, in a house in town. Yeah. Sure, you must be incredibly proud of the 88 years of your life. I am. I think I've handled it fairly well. Yeah. And it, it, you have your ups and downs, but, uh, you know, it, it's been good. Yeah. We thank you very much for joining us today and, and sharing your story. Thank you very much for doing it. I enjoy it. Our pleasure. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks to our sponsor, Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Hewitt.